Church. We're really glad that you're here this morning, and uh, again, hello to many of you watching and listening online. You are most welcome this morning, whether you're here physically or virtually, no matter where you're coming from, whether you have never been in church, whether you're a doubter, a skeptic, you're a brand new Christian, you're a Christian on the run, or you're a faithful Christian in the middle of struggle or good times, you are all welcome here, because God has a purpose this morning to speak to you this morning, and I hope you've come ready to hear him. It was a week ago today that Pastor Dave, uh, our lead pastor, went north to a a camp that we uh, partner with called Muskoka Woods. He was getting away for a few days to uh, continue to work on some some strategic thinking. And uh, I was going to join him the next day. So uh, he went up and I was at church that evening and then was working on actually this sermon on Monday. And then I got in my car around four o'clock and went north. Now, uh, what could go wrong? Life was great. Uh, yeah, my engine light was on, but who cares? It had been on for three weeks. So that's fine. And I got in my Volkswagen and it's going to be good. So I'm going north. And for you watching online who aren't from Canada, just north of here, there are amazing lakes just north of the city. And uh, Muskoka, uh, um, the camp that we work with, is right on Lake Rosso, an unbelievable lake. So I'm driving up, you know, 1248, if you know the area, and fine. And then near Beaverton, stop at McDonald's and get a mocha, and fine, and keep going. And it's getting darker, and my engine light's still on, but that's fine, because it's been no problem. Get under 169, up to the 11. Then I start hearing this very odd sound. From, from my car. Now, I'm the least car person on earth, as my family will attest. So I'm getting very nervous because I have no clue what it means. It could blow up and I wouldn't know. Uh, so I'm just nervous. I'm getting gripped. And then it happened. A snowstorm came. You know what I'm talking about? Out of the blue. So I'm, now I'm in a car. The engine light is going. There's this weird rattle. And then the snow really starts coming down. I mean, really starts coming down. You know when you put your high beams on, it's just like this white wall. So now there are trucks going 104,000 miles. And I'm like, right? And I'm like white. And then, oh, I forgot to tell you, I have my all-season tires on at this moment. Um, they are not all-season. That is a lie. All see lie, lie. It is two seasons, spring, summer. I just want to say that. So now I am on Highway 11, and I'm driving, and it's pitch black dark, and there are trucks, and there's this weird sound, and the engine light is taunting me, and I'm, I am starting to slip. And then the, the, the snow gets thicker and thicker, and it starts to freeze just a little bit. Well, I get off the, uh, the, the, the highway, and I get onto 141, which is that little sort of strip that goes all the way down the lake. And then I really start panicking, and I start crying, you know, Jesus, take the wheel. Carrie Underwood and me are, are singing together, and, and I'm really nervous because I'm now going 15 kilometers per hour because it's really bad, and then I realize I don't even know if I'm going to make it up the hills, and I didn't swear, by the way, I, that's truth, uh, but came close, um, and so uh, I, I'm driving up, and, and what's worse is that Nikki Fletcher, you know, one of our great worship leaders in our church? Her and her husband start texting me at that moment from Santa Monica. Oh, it's amazing. And, and we're at the sushi restaurant, California Dreaming. I'm like, I'm going to die. I'm never going to see my children again. And Nikki, anyway, God bless her and her husband. And so it was a terrifying moment. I pulled over and texted Dave and he said, take it slow. I said, I am. But it was really frustrating when you would go down these hills 
It's pitch black. There's no lights. There's no cars. On one side is jet rock. On the other side is a lake. And I'm really sort of scared because I think my Volkswagen's going to go. Now, why do we hate situations like that? What's well, simple? We're out of control. There's nothing, well, I could have checked the engine light. There's nothing, could have checked the tires. There's nothing you can do, though. No, you're like out of control. In that moment, all of us would admit that all of us hate being out of control because when we're out of control, instinctually we try taking control because we want to feel safe. Safe. Now, in that situation, that's good to try to be in control. And in many situations, actually, it's very good to be safe. But the problem is that we're part of a movement called Christianity where when God comes into our life, he says he's going to lead us. And it's very hard to move from always trying to be in control in, in bad and good situations and then let someone else really, truly be in control. Instinctually, in our very DNA, not just physically or organically, spiritually, emotionally, we want to run our own situation because we think that we've got it. But the funny thing about Carrie Underwood is she's right in this case. When we become a Christian, we declare that we want someone else to really take the wheel. We really do believe this intellectually. But much of us, sitting in this church online today, we who are followers of Jesus, continually in small and large ways have battles with God about control. Now, what we're going to hear today out of the scriptures is going to threaten that. I want to be right up front. It is going to begin to violate our deepest held beliefs as humans. But there's great freedom in it if we're willing to listen and obey. Paul has been building out of this amazing book in Ephesians, the extraordinary God that we worship, the church, the extraordinary unity we have. And he's been talking about how we are really all in this together. And he said that one of the great facets, one of the great truths, one of the shared experiences of our unity is that we all get to approach God no matter our history. And we also all get to pray. This is what he said in Ephesians 2.18. Through Jesus, we both, that's Jews and non-Jews in this case, have access to the Father by one Spirit. We have all encountered one God. We have met him through Jesus. And because the Spirit is in us, we get to approach God. We have access to God. Not everyone has access to God, but we do. He said in Ephesians 3.12, we ended here last week, in him and through faith in him, that's Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So here's the markers of unity. We get to approach God, we have access to God, and we get to do it with the characteristic of freedom and confidence. Now, Paul is basically saying, as we get into Ephesians 3, that's where we're going to be today. You can turn there physically, virtually. He says, since this is all true, And since this is one of the great privileges and foundational acts of unity, he says, I am now going to practice what I've just preached. I now, right in the scriptures, I'm going to pray. I need to pray, he's basically saying to this church, for you. I need to pray that everything that I've already given you, blessed you with, everything I've written, everything that God has done in your life and is doing, he would keep doing it. Why do I need to keep praying that you understand this? Everyone ready? Everyone look up for a moment. He says, I need to pray that every Christian gets this because what I'm about to do in the second half of Ephesians is I'm going to outline what unity actually looks like on the ground. It's where the rubber is going to meet the road. It's unity, he says, between husbands and wives. Uh Uh-oh. 
how slaves and masters interact with each other, how kids and parents treat each other, how leaders in the church have relationship. He says, I'm going to tell you what Christian unity really looks like. It's not some little story that we get to keep metaphorically and never actually see the implication. No, no, this is real. And so I'm going to pray one more time that you understand, believe, and embrace the unity before I get to the specifics. I can hear Paul saying something like, oh God, God, I cry out that they would know and live out this mystery incarnate that we have Jesus' unity among us. Because here's the implication. Now, I need everyone's attention for a moment, really. Because Paul is about to teach us in the second half that our unity is how we stand as a church against the devil himself. And our unity actually is the barrier from them getting footholds in us again. He said the stakes are so high in your marriage. The stakes are so high between people in the church. The stakes are so high between children and parents and working relationships because if we don't do this unity thing right, not only will Jesus not be glorified, not only will we live out the mystery called the gospel, the kingdom of darkness could actually get rights and grounds back into the church and we don't want that, do we? So Paul says, I need to pray. And so Paul breaks out in this unbelievable prayer, and at the end of the prayer, he worships. And and why, again, just as a side note, would he pray and then worship? Simple. Because prayer and worship experiences are not just reminders, but they're actual encounters with God himself, which remind every one of us who leads and owns us personally, and who leads and owns us as a people. Worship and prayer puts us in the space to be reminded that we are not truly in control. He says in Ephesians 3.14, these words, hear the word of God this morning, church. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. For this reason, he says, in light of everything I've told you in chapter 1, 2, and 3, I need to pray for you. Paul has moved from the glory of God to the power of the good news, now to prayer. And his second prayer, like his first prayer, is rooted in, built upon, presumes, and wholeheartedly embraces the sovereign work of God. And this prayer is given for one reason. That you personally this morning, me and you, us, that we as the whole church will actually get it. Get what? Everything already stated over us. See, as I've already preached, it's one thing to intellectually hear something or to understand, yes, I comprehend God's love. It's a whole other thing to really believe it, embrace it, live it out, and have it experienced. So at this moment, can you imagine in your mind this great man of God, now in the latter years of his life, kneeling down in that jail cell in Rome? And as he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins to pen this part of Scripture, he begins to pray out what he's penning. This most glorious, this most encouraging of prayers. A prayer not just for the church in Ephesus, but a church for every single church in every generation to come. He starts like this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now don't read that too quickly, everyone. The physical act of kneeling gives us great insight into Paul. See, for Jews of the day, standing was the most common posture for prayer with hands outstretched. You see that every single day other than on the Sabbath at the Wailing Wall. In Jerusalem today, 
But the act of kneeling is powerful. It expresses Paul's experience with deep earnestness. It is a deeply emotional act when he does this. It is beckoning. It is requesting nothing less than divine attention and action from heaven itself. Don't miss this. Solomon, when the temple was dedicated, that's when he knelt. Stephen, when he was about to be murdered, the first martyrdom in our movement, that's when he knelt. Peter, as one of his great friends Dorcas lay dying, that's when he knelt. Paul saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, wept over them, that's when he knelt. Jesus, when he was sweating blood in Gethsemane, praying for the whole world, that is when he knelt. So this prayer he is about to utter is deeply emotional, deeply engaged. It is said with power. He says, Father, I pray to you. Paul chooses to come to the fountainhead, the very source and origin of our physical life and the very source and origin of our spiritual life. He calls God Father. This is how he wrote it to another church in Rome. Romans 8.15, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit you receive, doesn't make you a slave so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship or daughtership, and by him we all cry, Abba, Father. God at his core is a relational God. That is why God is called Father. Now let me say this again. I've preached it before. Father is a name for God. This has nothing to do with maleness or femaleness. God has both characteristics in the scriptures of male and femaleness. But this is a name. You cannot change the name of God. You cannot not call him Father. Because if you change the name of God, you end up speaking to another God. It's like saying, well, I want to talk to John Thompson, but I'm not going to call you John Thompson. You can't do that. You can't call God Mother. Because that's not one of his names. This is one of his revealed names. Be very careful when you start playing around with God's names. Because God's names are linked to who he is. Now the question is, why is God called Father and why does it matter today? Well, for some of us, this image is unbelievably hard. Because our dads were broken, and our dads weren't what they were called to be. Sitting in this room and online, there is tons of fear, pain, and the damage is actually very real. But this name is still important. Think about what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. So what does this name really mean in Scripture? Not in our experience necessarily, but in Scripture. How does this name get redeemed for hundreds of you this morning? See, this name in the scriptures has to do with love. It has to do with origin and security and care. See, here's what one scholar said. Listen closely so you get this. Pious Jews of Paul's day and Jesus' day, aware of the gap between a holy God and a sinful human being, would never, they never called God Father, let alone Abba. Abba in Aramaic means Daddy or Dear Father. Jesus shocked many of his contemporaries by referring to God as his father and then inviting all of his followers to do the same. But rather than depicting God as a typical Middle Eastern patriarch who wielded considerable power within the family, he depicts God, the father, primarily as a tender and compassionate father who extends grace both to sinners and the self-righteous. See, God is a father. God is personal. God is tender. God is grace. And the most powerful, we know this, the most jaw-dropping, the most life-changing expression of this name is found in the great story, the parable that Jesus told, right, of the prodigal son. Some of you know the story. Some of you don't. The son, Jesus tells this story. He says, the son comes to his dad. He's being a real jerk and says, dad, I don't really care if you live or not. I don't love you. Give me money. 
give me my inheritance now, which is basically saying, why don't you just die? The father so brokenhearted he chooses to do it. He says the son went off into a foreign land and wasted his money basically on escorts. Well, it was Vegas. That's where he went. He spent his whole life drinking, partying. It's what it says. Uh, loose living. Had a great time. Lots of friends. Lots of money. Lots of sex, money, and power. Suddenly a famine comes into the land. And what happens next? All his friends are gone. Nothing has changed, right? He's alone. He's got nothing. The inheritance is gone. And as this young Jewish guy is sitting there, probably something like in his 20s, he now is actually feeding pigs, which is the worst thing a Jew can do. It's the most unclean animal. And he's starving to death, and he's eating actually what the pigs are eating. And as he's sitting there starting to die, this is where Jesus brings home the story. Let me read it from the message in Luke 15. It said, that brought him to his senses. Hmm. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down at three meals a day, and here I am starving to death? I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against God, and and I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a, a hired hand. And he got right up and went home to his father. And when he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding, that's the dad, and he ran out and embraced him and kissed him, and the son started his speech, you know, Father... Like I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you and I, I don't, I just, I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling his servants, quick, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring back on his finger, sandals on his feet. Then get the grain-fed heifer and roast it. Uh, we're going to have a feast. This is going to be a wonderful time. My son, my son, he's here. He was given up for dead and, and now he's alive. Given up for lost and now he is found. See, if you know the story, the father in the story represents God. And as another biblical historian wrote, the father in Jesus' story also failed to act like his listeners in that day expected. Instead of waiting at home, arms crossed, waiting for this brutal son to come crawling back, as any dignified Middle Eastern dad would do, the father in Jesus' story keeps a lookout for him. And as soon as he spots him, he runs at him and he throws his arms around his wayward son and he showers him with kisses. But there's more. Traditional Eastern, Middle Eastern men wore long robes. And in that culture, they never ran in public, ever. Because to expose your legs as a man was ultimate humiliation. But the father runs at his son, exposing his legs, and we miss the power of this. Do you know why? Because in that culture, if a son like that came home and so dishonored a family, the whole village would turn on the son before he even could get to the dad and kick him out. So the father says, I love my son so much, I'm going to expose myself to the community. He runs at the kid. Everyone's blown away that this very powerful man who owns so much is exposing his legs. And as they're watching the father... The father knows they're no longer looking at the son, and he scoops up his son and saves him from the village. This is the God we worship in this church. This is what fatherhood is in Scripture. God the Father runs for broken people. God the Father moves towards us. God the Father guards us. God the Father forgives us. God the Father welcomes us. God is a good Father. And so Paul comes before that Father, not the Father you may have in your mind. It's to this Father he comes. And he says, now to you, Lord, I speak. Now notice, he comes to God the Father 
who is called Abba. God is the father of all humanity, no doubt about it. But only those who have met Jesus know him as dad. Paul sees humanity divided between those who know and those who intellectually sort of know and those who actually relationally know. And the only way you will find salvation is through Jesus. That is clear with Paul. That's how you get to call him Abba. And now Paul says to you, Dad, here is what I pray. And he prays three things. If you're taking notes, you can just write them down. Power and love and presence. He says, I pray, verse 16, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Prayer one. He says, I am praying out of riches. Now you say, well, John, what riches is he praying over? Because I'm looking around and I don't got very much. So what is he talking about? Paul is praying out of everything he's already taught us in chapter 1, 2, and 3. So everyone ready? I'm going to give you an early Christmas gift. Everyone ready? I'm going to give you a recap, a fire hose worth of encouragement of everything that Paul has said that is true over you this morning if you're a Christian. If you want to know the power of Paul's prayer, you need not only to understand what he said, but actually to begin to live in it, through it, and under it. And so this is declared in chapter 1, 2, and 3, what God has done in you already, whether you feel it or not, and what God has done in us together. So here's what he said. He says, we together are saints. We together have grace. We together have peace. We together have been included in Christ. We together are blessed in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. We together are seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. We together have been chosen, elected, called, and foreknown. We together have been adopted. We together are now real sons and daughters of God. We together have redemption. We together have forgiveness. And we together have been sealed, branded, and tattooed by the Holy Spirit. And we together have eternal security. Is anyone encouraged yet? Okay, so three people and one at the back. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Then he says, we together are God's possession. We together are no longer spiritually dead. We are now no longer marked by God's eyes by trespass and sin. We are no longer owned by the devil. We've been saved by grace alone. We are no longer under the burden and lie that we get to know God by what we do. And we together get to reject the religious idea that God loves us more because of our good works. But we do get to do good works because we love him. Is anyone else on this side encouraged this morning? Okay, so a few more, okay? Clap on the WestJet flight, clap on the WestJet flight. Then he says, God is not done. He says that God has said over us that we are God's actual poem. Do you remember that? And we together, Jews and non-Jews, have been brought into a new family. And Jesus has given us peace with the Father. And Jesus has given us peace with each other. And now we, no matter our history, deeply sinful or arrogantly self-righteous or anything in between, because we've met Jesus, we have equal access to God through Jesus. And we together now may approach God with freedom and confidence. We are citizens of a new city. We are together members of a new family. We together are the building blocks of a new building. We actually are the temple of God. We are the church. And as he wrote to another church, there is no longer Jew or non-Jew, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is the riches he's talking about this morning. He said, yeah, and a clap. Oh, you people. Where are the Pentecostals in the house in the back? Come on. Now think about this. He says, this is truth. And then he says, so since all of that is true, I now pray for the Spirit of God to come in such power into your inner being that you will actually believe this and live this out. 
See, Holy Spirit, he's saying, you're already there. You reside at the core of the core of who I am. You, you are at the place where all my emotions and my thoughts and my very will stem from. Oh, Holy Spirit, Paul prays, have the greatest influence and presence in us. Transform each person and this whole church to reflect what you've already declared and done in them. See, such a strong influence at the center of your life and at your heart, you will not stay the same, and a church will not stay the same. Now, why does Paul call upon the Holy Father to send the Holy Spirit to do such things in great power? Here it is, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See, the indwelling Spirit of God is the presence of Jesus Christ himself. This is where the old Sunday school adage, I invited Jesus into my heart, comes from. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And Paul prays that Jesus, here it is, will take up long-term residence in you and in us. This is how he put it again in Galatians 4.6. Because you are his son... God sent his spirit of his son to be in your hearts or our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. There it is. One commentator I was reading this week made a great point. He said, look, he says, any time someone rents or leases or buys a house and walks into the house and lives in it for a while, the house reflects who lives in there. He says, it's obvious, but it's true. If you walk into any of your houses you know what style you are. Some of you are modern, and, and I don't know. Some of you are the people that have tons of kitsch everywhere, and I don't get you, but that's okay. And craft people, okay, craft away, all you do. And, and you know, other people are farmhouse. Like, you can see the style of a home. You, you can see the personality of the home. Even homes have smells to them. Not bad smells, necessarily, but smells. I remember my grandparents' house always had a distinct smell. It just, I knew it was their house. It, just, it was them. See, here's his point. If Jesus is taking up long-term residence in you, you have to be changed. You have to be changed. But if Jesus isn't taking up long-term residence, there's a great chance he is not there in the first place. So he understand what Paul's praying. He is saying, okay, God, great and loving Father who sends the Holy Spirit, who brings power and brings the presence of Jesus into us, I am praying that great power would be unleashed in the church, and I'm praying for long-term residence to take place in the church, but I'm not done. I'm also going to now pray for love because love finds its roots in everything else. I'm praying for love between Christians and love between God and us. And so I'm praying for vertical and horizontal love. So verse 17, he keeps praying. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Now let me stop. Paul uses mixed metaphors, plants and houses. He says you're like deeply rooted like trees and you're like the foundation of a house. The roots have to be deep and the foundation has to be built upon God's love. He says, I am praying that greater love would be found between Christians. And I'm asking you that nothing less than God's own love would be the foundation of every marriage and every relationship and every church globally. Now, what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Galatians 5. For the fruit, the evidence of God's Spirit, the first one is what? Say it loud. Love. Love leads to joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what Paul is praying for. And notice, the root, the foundation for all the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. There was a famous old preacher two generations ago called Dr. Barnhouse. Some of you may remember his name. And he was preaching years ago, and he said this. This is so good. This is gets my nerd excitement going. He says, look, he said, love is key, but joy is love singing. And peace is love resting. And patience is love enduring. And kindness is love's touch. 
And goodness is love's character. And faithfulness, I love this, is God's habit, is love's habit. And gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. And self-control is love holding the reins. Wow. Paul says, oh God, oh God, you've begun a new thing among us. Don't let it die or crumble or get jaded. Don't let skepticism and jadedness and sin kill this. Oh God, more of this between everyday broken people. I pray for love between them. But then he says, I understand that's not enough. So he keeps praying in verse 17, not only love between them. I pray for more. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. See, notice this. He prays that God's power would come so we would actually understand not only our love for each other, but we would comprehend with all of God's people God's own love. He says, oh God, please let them comprehend and understand the dimensions of your love. This love that breaks all that we think of, bursts the categories that we can invent, like a water breaking a dam. This love is so consuming. And Paul is saying, oh God, So many people in the church have been Christians for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years and they do not believe and understand and experience your love. It's not good enough. Oh God, let them get it. Don't you see what Paul's saying here? You will never be able to go beyond your love understanding with God. That is the height of your maturity in, in Christ. Your maturity in Jesus as a Christian is limited or unlimited, depending on how much you actually embrace what God has done for you. And Paul says, oh, so many don't get it. As one pastor preached, that God would break in so much in everyday church, that we'd really believe that God's love is long enough that it will last forever, and God's love is high enough to take us all into heaven, and God's love is deep enough that Jesus himself will be taken to the lowliest of sinners, and that God's love is wide enough to embrace the whole world. See, this pushes us beyond intellectually knowing the Bible. God loves me. That's critical and important. But see, this is not just about right thinking alone. Real Christianity is right thinking and genuine encounter. It is right thinking and right feeling. It is to be surprised and overwhelmed. It is to be faithful and experience God's love. So Paul prays, first of all, for power. And then then he prays through that power that Christ would be present. And then he prays for love horizontally and vertically. And then he prays this prayer that is so unbelievable, so beautiful, so, so scary. I just love it. And then he says, Lord, here's my simple request. Just show up. Show up. Here's revival. Just show up among your people. Verse 19, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He says, I am praying that you would come because of course you can't surpass something we don't understand. It's paradox, but I'm asking for God himself to show up. I'm asking you, holy God of heaven and earth, show up in your people in your temple with yourself. Bring yourself and nothing more. Send the spirit of Christ, though he is present, in greater form, in greater measure, in greater power, so your people will be overwhelmed. Do you know this is the same phrase Paul uses for Jesus in Colossians 1? That he is filled with the fullness of God? Paul is crying out, oh God, fill the church again and again and again and again. Back to the car. If you are, in the, if you are the car and Jesus is now <laughs> driving, you run out of gas. You need to have refilled. You need to be filled up. 
We all got the Holy Spirit at conversion. We all were baptized in the Spirit when we got saved. But Paul says in Ephesians 5, you need to be continually asking for filling. And Paul is asking something even greater here. He's saying, God, bring your very presence among us. Bring all that you are and flood us, empower us, overcome us. Do not relent and do not stop. Come among your people in in such power that we will not stay the same. It's 2 Chronicles 5, everyone. It's what he's asking for. Now, by the way, at this moment, this is where Paul takes a breath. That whole prayer has been one line, just so you know. That whole run is what he sort of spews out of him in holy love. Now, let's just take a gut check. Everyone look back up here for a moment. If anyone's sitting here today, honestly, you've been a Christian for years, you've just become a Christian, or you're not one at all, and you just take this prayer at face value, just take it for face value. Be honest. You're going, not going to happen. Please, John, please. I've been in church for years. I've never seen this. I've been to six churches in my life. I have never seen what you're talking about. Anglican, Pentecostal, Baptist, Brethren, Independent, and done it. Never happened. I've never seen a church love like this. I've never been, I've never been like this. I've never seen God show up in such power in a church. I've been waiting for 40 years. I suppose that's for heaven. See, this is very significant. Because this runs headlong into our skepticism, our jadedness, and our failed dreams. And many of us, if we were honest this morning, are sitting here going, I don't believe this. And it's not going to happen. Because if it was going to happen, I would have seen it already. This is, here's the word, impossible. Paul comes back to us and says, you're wrong. Hugs to all of you, you're wrong. Paul says, no, I am not embarrassed that I'm asking for the impossible. My petition, yes, is great and grand, but I remind you I'm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit penning it, and I unabashedly cry out to the one that is all-knowing, all-powerful, and who is all-present. I remind you to who I'm praying this to. I'm not praying this to you, and I'm not praying this to myself. I'm praying this to the Father. Now, verse 20, that is on every bumper sticker on earth, now has context. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more, Then we ask or imagine according to his power that's already at work within us. In Greek, this reads power upon power. God will not fit into your skepticism, into your limitations. God can do this, and he is doing this because God's power is already coursing through this church. And he is saying, oh no, this is not done. There is more power, more love, more presence. You can do this, God. You can do immeasurably more, more than I can imagine or believe or ask for. Your power can be displayed in everyday people. Now here's the moment. C4, hear me this morning. A church can look like this prayer. A church can actually look like this prayer. Because the one that we're asking to do it can do it. We cannot. This is a bold declaration by Paul saying, God, I'm asking not for small C church. I'm asking for heaven-given church. And then he ends this prayer by breaking out in praise and says, how can I not worship? He says, to him, to, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Why does he do that? He says, because the glory of God is found in the church because the people of God have said, yes, we want the will of God. And why ultimately in Jesus? Because Jesus is the only person who never sinned and welcomed the will of God completely. To us, God's glory is on us because we are God's poem. We are his color, remember? We are his manifest, we are his manifest wisdom. We, we are the billboard 
to evil, that they got it wrong. He said, there is glory in the church, and there is glory through Jesus Christ. And then he says, amen. It's done. It's finished. Part one is finished. This is true. You can say amen too if you'd like. And he says, now I'm done praying. Now the question this morning as we prepare for Christmas and we keep just doing life is this. What is the purpose and point of this for us? Well, I want to say here is a call for nothing less than again a call to significant prayer. How the church is starving for real, biblically informed, knowledgeable, empowered, anointed prayer. How we are desperate to really see, learn, and experience powerful and effective prayer. Prayers filled with such expectation and the Holy Spirit given through Jesus towards the Father. See, personal renewal always starts when people pray prayers like this over themselves. Corporate revival, when God sweeps through a church for a season, happens when people en masse say, Lord, I want this. Awakening happens and is lit in an area when prayers are prayed and it takes place. But C4, I want to remind you what you're asking for. Because if you pray this prayer and you pray it for your church, this prayer is nothing less than a request for Jesus to claim everything that you are. It is asking for such a wave and such a move of God. It is welcoming Jesus into everything we are. It is saying, oh, Holy Spirit, the one that brings the very presence of Jesus, you will not, cannot be tucked and moved, forced into some back corner or closet. You have absolute right, reign, and rule in a church. This prayer is that God, who has already taken up residence in everyday people, at the core of us, will so burst and overflow that we will be radically redefined. And as this sweet presence comes, as this all-loving God comes, what will he gently ask from your hand? What will he come to this whole church and say, listen, C4, love you. But this is the three things I want to take out of your hand. Because if you let me do this, marriages will be restored. You'll forgive people. Bitterness will fall apart. The demonic will have to flee. There will be joy in the church that is not fake. Where and what do I ask from you? Three things. The prayer threatens these things. Independence. Self-fulfillment and self-determination. The three great core values of our whole culture. This prayer is radically anti-cultural because this is a prayer for real revival. This is a prayer for real Christianity. This is a prayer where independence is threatened, where self-fulfillment is threatened, where self-determination is brought down. It's as one scholar said, he said, self-determination is replaced now by our uniqueness in God's work. And total dependence replaces independence with Jesus. And self-fulfillment is now replaced by God's will, not our own. See, only through the Holy Spirit's power will you even know Jesus' presence. And only through Jesus' presence will you know God's love. And only through God's love would you even want to give up independence, self-fulfillment, and self-determination. And you would say, of course it's not worth my time. Of course it's not worth my life. Oh, how I want to know and obey the Father. These things do not last. See this passage for what it is. This is a prayer that reveals, though, many of us have known Jesus and trusted Jesus. There's so much more for us than we have experienced. There is more for you this morning. C4, there is. There's more for your marriage. There's more for your walk. There's more for your friendships. There's more for your connect group. There's more for this church. And this prayer reflects it. And our unity as a church will grow more and more and more as prayers like this are uttered and then answered. So let me just summarize it like this. This is a prayer for the Holy Spirit's power to come in such strength 
to church does not look the same. It is a willing request for the character of the Holy Spirit in everything we do, at 3 a.m. and everywhere in between. It is a prayer for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all 21 plus, to break out among us. It's like D.A. Carson said, this is a prayer that says, Oh God, give me the power to be holy. The power to think, act, and talk in utter pleasing ways to Jesus. The power to strengthen my moral resolve to say no to sin. Power to walk in transparent gratitude before God. Power to be humble. Power to be discerning. Power to be obedient and trusting. Power to grow in conformity to Jesus himself. When the Holy Spirit shows up, yes, weird things happen. But if you don't look like Jesus after the encounter, the Holy Spirit wasn't there. This is a prayer, O Spirit of God, sovereign triune God, send your power among the church. And then he says, as your power comes and Jesus takes up residence, I would ask that they would learn to love each other and love you. And he says, oh, I pray that they would truly know the love that God has given them. And and when we pray things like this in church and we sing songs like, oh, I'm a lover of your presence. The truth is many of us are like, you're coming too close, God. You're invading me. You're getting too intimate. My privacy is being threatened. You're exposing my immaturity. You're showing me my selfishness. We want our own boundaries. But God comes and says, do you not know how much I love you and what I've done and what I'm going to do? This is a prayer. Oh, God, make the presence of Jesus so real that we sense your love, believe your love, and walk in your love. Send the power of God. Help them understand the love of God. And then it is a prayer asking for the fullness of God. It is saying, O God of heaven and earth, would you come in such power that whether I'm in the washroom or I'm in my family room or I'm at Starbucks or I'm sitting in church, I cannot, I cannot avoid the power and palpable presence of God here on earth. It is saying to him who is immeasurably able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And do you notice I end with this? Who does he pray it for? All the saints. This is a prayer for revival that every child and every tween and every teen and every young adult and every adult and every senior would know the power of the Holy Spirit that would know the love of God that does not make sense because it surpasses knowledge that would begin to love others and the fullness of God, the very active presence of God would be so among us, it would be undeniable. People would have to say, let us go to C4 and treat God there because we have heard he's among you. And that is why this prayer is so beautiful and powerful and threatening. Because he comes at the same time and says, I want to free so many of you from the shackles of independence and self-fulfillment and self-determination. Do you not know that I am a good, good father? The cry of God is this, oh, that God the Father, yes. Oh, that God the Father in this place would be redeemed among many of you. That God the Father would not become a hindrance anymore, but a great and powerful life-changing experience. That he himself would redeem fatherhood for you. Oh, that the Holy Spirit would come in great power and make us different. Oh, that we would want and invite Jesus Christ into us so we look like him. That we would want to love others we don't like. And that we would know God's love for us. And that the church would be filled with God himself. That is nothing less than a real prayer. So this is what I ask you to do now as we prepare to respond. I'm going to pray this prayer. And if you have the boldness to do it and the trust to do it, you join me. 
And I'm going to ask you to insert your name as we pray this. Because we know that when we pray scripture, God hears and he will respond because it's his will. So as we say, get in a posture. Stand, kneel, sit, prostrate yourself, like whatever you want to do. You can raise your hands, you can cover your face. But this again is a prayer that God would continue to do what he's doing among us. So here's what we pray. For this reason, I, and you just put your name in there, kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray, this is for yourself, out of his glorious riches, that he may strengthen me with power through his spirit in my inner being. And I pray that I, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. For me and us, I'll add that. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that I may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than I could ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within me. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever. And everyone said, Amen.